we give you the playbook to lead high-performing engineering teams. I'm here with Debbie Levitt, author, speaker, broadcaster, researcher, and customer experience and user experience. In this podcast, we are going to take a deep dive into mastering the customer-centric approach. I'd like to start by saying that you are an innovator and an impressive figure in the world of customer experience and user experience design. Um, Your insights have shaped a range of organizations from startups to multi-billion companies, probably established ones. And in addition to your consultancy work, you're also an author, a keynote speaker, and a YouTuber. And well, basically, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, can you explain the Mary Poppins of CX UI? What does it mean to you and how does it this approach transform companies and teams? Yeah, so uh, the nickname actually came from my clients. I know it sounds like I worked hard to come up with that slogan myself, but it actually came from my clients who, um, gosh, six, seven, eight years ago when I was living and working in San Francisco, People were actually, I guess it started in 2014, I think was the first time I heard it. But my clients and coworkers were independently calling me Mary Poppins. And and I think I just had the reputation of flying in, fixing everything I could, uh, singing a few songs since I'm a musician, (laughs) and then flying away to, you know, whatever company needed me next. And uh, literally independently, without me using that as a slogan, clients, when I would leave a building, clients would go, buy Mary Poppins. (laughs) And I was thinking, I think there's something in here. So now I say I'm the Mary Poppins of CX and UX. And, and, Basically, it means I would love to come into people's companies, fix everything I can, but usually I'm I'm flying away after after kickstarting that initiative. Sure, thank you for explaining that. Uh, it caught my attention. It's quite interesting to see that on LinkedIn uh, as a sort of this subheading um, or or a title. I don't know how to call it, but it's right. uh, very intriguing. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, customer centricity, if you, if you don't mind. I'd like to ask sure. you what does what does it true customer uh, centricity look like, and how it uh, does it differentiate from other models. Yeah, so to me, customer centricity is about making sure that we're putting first all of our customers, users, whoever's in our ecosystem. Those could be B2B customers, B2C, both. They could be partners, resellers. There's all kinds of people who exist in our ecosystem. And whether we call them customers or users, our business doesn't really work without them. Our business doesn't grow without us attracting more of them and um, finding a way to keep these people happy and keeping them. And so to me, customer centricity is about changing some of our internal strategies, decisions, processes, products and services to really make sure that we are matching what people need or exceeding that. Um, But too often, a lot of companies say, well, we're sales focused, you know, sales is just going to find us more. I've had companies say to me, we don't care if customers leave, sales will find more people. That's Mm -hmm. definitely not customer centric. I've had people say, well, we're product led. And I say, sounds fancy, sounds modern, but you can be product led without giving a crap about the customer. You can be led by what product are we building next and what feature will we release? 
without really understanding who's going to use it, how they're going to use it, and, and things like that. So I think we get caught up in a lot of different buzzwords right now around how are we led, but I say be value-led. What is the most value you can create for customers and users in every single product and service? And of course, that has to be balanced with business goals. I'm not saying ignore how the business wants to make piles of money. We know the business wants to make piles of money. We get it. But we, we should be doing that with our users and customers by making them happy and not by treating them as people to be manipulated or pieces to push around a chessboard. Interesting. I'm very curious <clears throat> about the phrase value led. Mm -hmm. And I'm also intrigued by the fact that you haven't mentioned satisfaction here. Uh, you mentioned what clients need and not making them as fat, so satisfied as possible. Could you elaborate on that tiny differences between those two words? I think there's, there's, there's some significance here. Sure. So usually I say the trio of things all together. So I probably said attracting and winning new customers, making them happy or satisfying them. I, I hope they'll be happier than satisfied. Satisfied always sounds a bit neutral to me. Like, ah, I'm satisfied. If someone said, you know, hey, how's your relationship with your partner? Eh, I'm satisfied. You'd be like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> what's going wrong? So I really want to make our customers thrilled to pieces if possible. And then we need to, to keep them. We need to retain them. That's that loyalty piece. So to me, all of these go together because like I was mm. saying about that company, you can win new customers. You can think you're making them happy, but if they're not loyal in the end and they're not staying, then yes, a lot, you have, there's a lot of pressure on your sales team to try to find more customers, more new customers who you're just going to, to blow through. I didn't mm -hmm. know if you wanted to ask something else about that or if you wanted me to talk more about value-led. Well, let me do one more uh, follow-up questions and sure. value-led I'd like to explore it as well. So uh, I think specifically uh, service companies sometimes face this uh, dilemma or trade-off between doing what the customer wants and doing what customer needs or at least that the, you know, the, the company believes that the customer needs. Right. And sometimes we also... like me myself running a company a service company sometimes fa face that dilemma how to deal with that and i'm wondering if customer centricity has an answer to that or or, or guidance regarding how to act in that yeah situation absolutely so the core of this here because the question would be what do customers want what do they need who decided either of these What's the difference and how do we know? And ultimately we'll know if we do more research with our users and customers. For example, a lot of people admire Apple. Apple spends 6% of their annual revenue, which is huge, huge amounts of money on research and development. Apple doesn't put guesses out there. Apple doesn't put MVPs out there. And I think what a lot of people like about Apple is they seem to have taken the time to try to understand who's going to use this and how and make it so that it's just easy for that person. It fits into their life and makes things better. Apple's not perfect, but they certainly do get some things right. So at the core of this is going to be research. Now, too often companies will run a survey and say, 
aha, we have our, our research or, Hey, I think I'll call three customers and ask them what they want. We could call these research, but I would argue these are probably not good research. Uh, mm -hmm. If they, if you're basing your entire company strategy on talking to three people, you run the risk that those are three weird people or that they want completely different things. And now you won't know what to do. A lot of times we run a survey that tries to prove that people might want this thing we wanted to build anyway. So that's been kind of manipulated in smaller, large ways. So what I'm recommending to companies is to reinvest in their research using qualified researchers, not anybody who thinks they want to ask a customer a question mm -hmm. and making sure that we're doing observational research. Let's watch how people do this. If this is a service, let's watch people. Let's say it's a hotel checking into different hotels. Where does this seem to go right? Where does this seem to go wrong? What can we learn about their experiences by being a detective and watching them? The problem is when we call people up and ask them, hey, tell me about a time you checked into a hotel. There's a lot of steps and pieces that they're probably going to miss or forget, or they'll think they're not important, but your company knows they're important. Now we're not talking about them. Or if you ask them what they want, very often people aren't even fully aware, aware of what their problem is. So they're unlikely to be the best architect of the solution. So it's up to us to hire the best detectives, whether as freelancers or contractors or full-time employees or an outside agency, um, to help us with that stuff. Otherwise, we are probably mostly operating on guesses and assumptions and opinions. And it's, it's going to take us months, if not longer to learn if those were wrong. And then we might not even be sure where we went wrong. I think that's a very, very reasonable thing because I, I, I my understanding is that basically the research will align those two things uh, eventually, uh, meaning what, what, what's needed and what's uh, wanted by the, by the customer. Yeah, because we there might be something a customer claims they want, but there are so many stories out there from both startups and existing companies where they say, well, we asked people what they wanted, and then when we did it, it was a disaster. We went out of business. We lost money. We had to roll that release back. And I say, well, that's because it's the wrong question. The wrong question isn't what you want. If you say, you know, I wish I had a, a cup to drink some water out of. Well, there's a zillion ways you can design a cup. It doesn't mean we've really understood what the person's trying to do, their context, their environment. Do they have disabilities or conditions? Um, because I don't know if we're video on this podcast, but I'm holding up a cup that holds a liter of liquid. It's very American. You know, the cups in, in Europe do not look like this. So if I say, hey, people want a cup, we know they should stay hydrated. Let's give them this big, heavy, you really have to wrap your hand around it. You have to have good hand strength cup that holds a liter. And then when it doesn't sell to the European audience, everyone's going, well, we asked everybody what they wanted and a cup sounded right. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice one. Thanks. <laughs> Can you unpack the, the concept of value-led uh, optimization for in terms of uh, customer? 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. So the way that I see it is I want to focus companies on being value-led, not company values, though those are important too, mm -hmm. but value-led because I think companies right now in general, not all of them, but many of them are obsessed, it seems, with deadlines and speed, uh, really left over sometimes from books like Lean Startup, where we thought the best thing we could do was to be fast. And we forgot that for our customers, the best thing we can do is to be good, if not great. When we think about the companies we do business with, we think about quality. We, unless we work in tech, we usually don't think, wow, it took them a long time to release that. We don't have a sense of what our vendors or the companies we do business with, we don't have a sense of what they're working on or how long it took them. If, if Monday.com was one of my favorite companies, not sponsored, if it took them two weeks longer or a month longer to release a new feature, I don't really have a sense of that. I, I, and, and so maybe Monday has a deadline for whatever reason for what they're building, but I don't have a sense of, gosh, I really waited two more weeks for that than I expected. I, I'm not looking at their roadmap. So I think some of these deadlines are a little artificial and especially when we've decided the most important thing our company can do is be fast, we've really lost sight of quality. We've lost sight of the value we can deliver for customers. And we know we've lost it when we hear our internal teams say things like, it's good enough, or just ship it, or everyone's favorite, we'll fix it later, which means we know now it's broken. It's broken now. It's not quite right now. And we're go and we say, well, well, we'll fix it later, which means we assume that our customers have some pretty low standards where they're not going to mind this lack of value that we are knowingly released. And that's where I ask, does this match your company values? Are your company values release half broken crap now and pretend you're going to fix it later and then probably not fix it later or, or not even fix it correctly. How many times has a company put out an update and you're like, this is still broken. So I want to get companies refocused, excuse me. <clears throat> I want to get companies refocused on value in the customer's eyes, not what the stakeholder says, not what a product manager says, or even in engineering data, UX, marketing leads, CX. What does the customer perceive as value? Uh, high value, high quality, five stars out of five. If we don't know, do do that research. Bring in those qualified researchers. Get to know your customers in ways you seem seem to not know, and uh, learn what they perceive as quality and value. So you can make sure you are delivering that. That's your best chance at satisfaction, if not delight, and loyalty, if not super word of mouth. I was sort of uh, thinking about my own approaches. That's why I got like hanged, hanged for a second. Right. Uh, now we, we'll hold on <laughs> a second. Am I doing the right thing? What are we doing at my company? Uh-oh. And that's my dream. If somebody hears my podcast or, or reads my book or watches one of my YouTube shows and says, hold on, what's going on at my company? That's like mission half accomplished. I just want people to be open to taking that tough look at themselves and asking those questions or, or making an appointment with me and I'll ask you the tough questions. Speaking of which, I, I'd like to ask, uh, to talk a little bit about Delta CX. 
Sure. Uh, could you share a recent success story from Delta CX where you helped a company overcome a significant challenge? And yeah. what were the key elements that led to that success? Yeah, sure. So um, we did a project earlier this year, 2023, um, that is still a bit of a work in progress, but we're super excited about it. So I'm happy to talk about it. It's confidential, but I'll give you the short version. We had a startup with money come to us and say, we haven't found product market fit. And now we're not even sure what we're building. We're not even sure what to build. And we've got investors and we're under some pressure. We're not sure. We think it should be this, and we think it's for this audience, but, but we don't know. And someone said, talk to you. And they'd already gone to a company who did, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, user research, <laughs> where they found 10 people in New York City making the same money and around the same age, and they asked them kind of the old, what do you want? And the client got a 36-page report that was just a fire hose of everything these people said. And I said, well, what did you do after you got the report? They said, we didn't know what to do. It, this just seemed like everything. You know, we couldn't focus on, on a strategy or a direction. And that's what we're hoping you'll do. So we did a six-week project, which to some people is long and to some people is short. So I leave Depending that on the you. deadlines. Yeah, exactly. And we were on time, so that was awesome. Uh, it was a six-week project of, of research. We met 36 people in their target audience, um, and we did mostly interview research. This was the type of thing where we couldn't totally watch what people did because it related to personal finances and something that happens over a long period of time. So we, in this case, as much as I love to do observational research, this was mostly interview. And we spoke with these people um, about this particular topic. And then once we were analyzing and synthesizing that data, we fulfilled our promise to our client, which was to pretty much invent their business. We came up with what they should offer, how it should be offered. Um, we came up with their business model, uh, what, what, they, what we think they should, how they should make their money, because we didn't want to see them charge people. They had an idea to charge people for this, and I'm like, no one wants to pay for that. So we came up with a way for them to kind of like take this secret money from some other place that the user won't even know was being taken, you know, kind of a, a fee or a, a hidden percentage. Um, we invented the whole thing and we gave them a high level roadmap with priorities. We gave them a, a user a behavioral typologies, which to me are better than personas. Personas tend to be uh, very demographic based, but that doesn't really help you. We already knew they wanted American millennials. So who are these people behaviorally? What can we do um, to, to address that? And it was great because to, to try to wrap up a longer story, we really dispelled a lot of myths for the client. For example, they thought, oh, we probably just should be a paid social network. We were able to show their target audience doesn't want a social network and doesn't want it to be paid. Or if it is a social network, here's a couple of really important things you're going to have to do that are out of the ordinary. They also went and did some of their own research. And this is very common for both startups and larger companies, which is, hey, you know, research looks easy. We're just going to go talk to some people. And they went into the old coffee shop and grabbed some people and asked them some questions. And so when we met with them at the end of the project, they said, well, 
We found that people were really unmotivated around this topic. So don't you think we need to build a motivation platform? Now imagine all the startups and companies who do that type of research and then say, well, we must need to build a platform that motivates people to do this personal finance thing. And I said, did you find out why they're unmotivated? And everyone kind of, you know, we're on the video call, everyone's looking at each other and they're like, no. And I said, well, we did. I said, we found, I said, group one from your five typologies that we've presented is the unmotivated group. But we found out why they're unmotivated. They're unmotivated because their life is upside down. Their life's out of control. Their life's a mess. They're unemployed. They're going through personal changes. They have health issues. They're struggling with COVID or the, the pandemic or, or the down economy. They've lost their job. Whatever you think they're going to do in the personal finance universe right now, they're not going to do it. Their stuff is just out of control. You're not going to win them over. And a motivation platform is not going to change it. This is a low priority for them. When it becomes a priority, they'll be in group two of our, our typology set. So we don't think you should bother trying to win over the unmotivated. They'll become motivated when there's space in their life to think about this. Right now, they're a little bit more in survival mode and not so much improving personal finance mode. So I, I think this, while, while they're still building it and we haven't heard back in a couple of months, I'm really excited about the amount of information we were able to give them and the way that we were able to represent it in different types of documents. We gave them a list of problem statements where we said, even if you don't wanna go with our direction on how we would solve it, here's the problem statements. You saw mm. here is the ecosystem we've invented for your company. Here's how all these different groups and audiences and people work together to improve their personal finances and make you money. Um, so we were really excited about what that could bring to a, really a company of any size, whether that's a company that says, we want to improve what we're offering people, or we want to offer something new to people. And it took six weeks, but it was, let's just say, extremely reasonably priced. And um, it's, it's the type of money some companies won't have, but some will. Uh, I'll tell you, it, it cost roughly 70,000 American. You know, so it's not a wild amount of money. Um, some people spent that on their startup party. So, um, you know, mm -hmm. the, the parties are fun um, and, and flying around first class is fun. But what if you knew more about your target users and were able to really create for them what is likely to work best based on who they are and their behaviors? It's so hard to change people's behaviors. You can sometimes, you can barely get someone to change their haircut, let alone stop smoking, lose weight, save money, all these things that a lot of startups feel like, oh, we're just going to motivate people and change them. It, it's really hard. You have to know a lot more about behavioral psychology and you have to use it with kindness and not with manipulation. I spoke recently with uh, Stefan Schutler, who's a CPO at uh, one of the Berlin startups, and he said, uh, the most, most of the time he spent these days is actually discovery. And he basically compares it to running a, um, call center. He basically spends, I don't know, but definitely significantly, um, significant amount of his time, uh, to make 30 or 40 calls per week 
just to learn about those uh, those uh, uh, customers that he perceives as his customers and validate that. That's a form of research. I think for me, the things that you just said uh, basically perfectly aligns with what he said and how he approaches that. Well, of course, one is, yeah. Oh, except I'm going to jump in here yeah, and be please rude do. and interrupt you. Correct um, me, please except, do. Well, it's not that to correcting you. It's more that we don't know what he's asking customers. And we know that there are good and bad questions. You oh, know, a yeah. bad question is, do you want a, a cup to drink out of? You know, sure, yeah. Um, what do you need? I have product managers who call me all the time as customers of their company and ask me, terrible questions and and i will sometimes say to them how is that actionable when you hear my answer to that question what are you actually going to do you know people say what's our product missing and i'll go how come you don't know that you should be doing the right research if you were doing observational research with people you wouldn't have to call them up and go mm. we don't know what to build you what do you think's missing so so i would say while it sounds very cool that he is making those calls i'm very nervous about people who are not qualified researchers doing research you wouldn't let me code and you shouldn't i'm a terrible coder we don't know, uh, and again, only because I haven't seen this guy in action, maybe he's amazing. <laughs> maybe he has a background in, in CX and UX research and he's freaking awesome. I yeah, he know. does. Yeah, but unfortunately I, he does. <laughs> you never know. You just never know. I've seen some people who have backgrounds in design be really bad researchers. Mm. And so I would want to be, I would want to see... Whenever somebody says to me, ah, we have product managers calling people up and talking to them, I always say, send me a list of those questions mm -hmm. because there's good questions and there's bad questions. And so ultimately, how do you know if you're asking the right questions? Are you getting back information that is actionable? Are you learning more about people's problems? Can you write problem statements from the perspective of the user and customer, or are you writing problem statements from the perspective of the business, or you're not writing problem statements at all, and you're just calling people up and expecting them to either say yes to your proposed solution or expecting people to come up with their own solutions. So that's, that's my only concern there, because I know there's a big movement right now for product managers to circumvent qualified researchers or not higher qualified researchers. And I want to remind everybody, product managers are not supposed to be the everything at a company. The best thing a product manager can do is support the budget and the resources to bring in a qualified researcher. If you would not get, and oh, if you would not qualify for a CX or UX qualitative research job at a company, please don't do the research. I wouldn't qualify for a dev job. Don't let me write the code. Nice. So it's not just about the amount of research. It's also about the quality of the research. Absolutely. This is the whole conversations about quality, because if we do low quality research, we can pat ourselves on the back and sit in a meeting and go, yep, we uh, spoke. I spoke to 10 customers this week. Okay. But did you get crap out of them? I looked at some research recently, like the, what about what the startup had? Holy cats, that 36 pages. I read them. They were totally not actionable. I saw some research recently about what might students want in an online system to plan their courses. And the research said things like, students want this to be easy to use. Really? 
Amazing. I'm so glad we found that out. Otherwise, you know, so it's really about the quality of the research will lead to the quality of the evidence, data, and knowledge. And if we all feel like we don't have good evidence, the research probably wasn't good. And I tell people one of the many ways you can tell if your research wasn't that good is, are we making decisions based on someone's personal opinion or personal preference? If so, then we don't have the research about the customers or users that would tell us what they would need or prefer. And since we don't have that evidence, we're just going, well, what do you like? Well, what do I like? Well, what, what do you think this should be? We should know. And for those who may be struggling with uh, runway or just starting uh, their ventures without any funding before the seed run, but want to research and want to do it uh, in a good way, are there any resources that you recommend? The one that comes to my mind is the MUM test. I don't know it, uh, if you're familiar with that one. Basically, it's all the book is the entire book is about how to structure uh, questions, and I highly recommend it. But are there any more resources that uh, you would uh, recommend to people? Well, give me an example. What do you think is the best question from the MUM test? What's a question you would be telling your listeners to ask? Basically, the, the, the structure that they try to suggest is that first, try to understand and not go directly with the, don't start off with the questions about uh, your product, start to understand the person first, their habits, what they're doing, what's happening in their life, and then make the questions, uh, structure them that they actually uh, somehow correspond to the outcome that you're offering or the solution that you're um, proposing rather uh -huh, that's than where it's going wrong. Yeah? Uh -huh. Okay. Found it. So when we do, uh, so there's two main types of, of research, generative and evaluative. Evaluative says we have a, a concept or a wireframe or a sketch or a prototype or a dev build or a live product, and we want to see people use this and see where it works for them and where it doesn't. Generative research, which, which is really what they're talking about, is when we is more of the, that discovery or exploratory mm -hmm. or early research where we're trying to learn more about people, context, systems, how they do this now and, and things like that. And evaluative research is based on a solution that you, you have or that you think could work. Generative research is supposed to be solution agnostic. Okay. There's, it's supposed to be nothing in there related to the outcome you want or the product you're thinking of building, because what ends up happening very often, usually just through bad research technique, is somebody tries to lead people down a path with questions that make it sound like, oh, yeah, I might want what you're, you're going to build. Um, but if we're not doing evaluative research and showing it to them and letting them really try it for themselves, don't show it to them and walk them through it and say, do you like it? The best way to do evaluative research is to give people that prototype or dev build or live thing and go, you're, you're trying to book a hotel room, go. Tell them nothing. So if your early discovery, exploratory, generative research is solution focused in that you are trying to prove or disprove a solution, not only are you not following the scientific method, but you're probably going to bias your results. It, it, this might be one of the many things that helps 90% of startups fail. That in the lean startup book. The problem is that we see so many startups failing 
they're all using these same books and techniques. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we questioning that more? Why aren't we going, wow, everybody's doing lean startup. Everybody's trying mom test or whatever it is. And then we're going, wow, look at all the failure. This is definitely not, this definitely doesn't seem to work very often or very well. And so I would be advising people, especially if you're trying to do some research yourself, don't ask, do you want this? Do you like this idea? Um, don't, don't ask them questions about the outcomes you're looking for. The outcome you should be looking for is just knowledge. So I would warn people away from any line of questioning that relates to a particular solution. The best discovery, exploratory, generative research just understands people, their context, their tasks, their behaviors, their decision-making, their knowledge, and their needs. And then if you have great problem statements and you understand the problems and the opportunities there, then think about the solutions. Mm. Then think about the features. Don't be the feature factory and say, oh, I think we should just build some cups for people. People need cups, right? Cups validated. You know, make sure that you are... Uh, not being a feature factory. Start with problems and opportunities, then look at what might be the best solutions for that and use the evaluative testing cycles that that's in human-centered design, which is the process many UX people use, to see, are we going in the right direction? We don't have to put out an MVP to know if we're going in the right direction. We can know even earlier before we waste engineering's time by letting UX create a great prototype. I recommend Axure for prototypes, not sponsored. And <laughs> then we can know super early before engineering writes code for a crappy idea, we can know if it's going in the right direction because we did even earlier uh, testing and studies before having to put it out there. Just to take one takeaway from it, uh, maybe that's my takeaway, but sure. the output of the research, the main thing that that results from the uh, from the research are the problem statement, at least from that phase, and it's separate from from validation, and you should not like combine those two into one research um, phase. If, you, if you're going to combine it, you got to really know what you're doing because I feel like I can combine them because I've been doing this for 13 years, but I'm not sure the average person would combine them well. For example, we did a study two years ago for an e-commerce company and we wanted to understand how to improve anything that people were dealing with because their sales were down. So we... To, we gave people a fake scenario. We said, you have uh, $1,000 to buy 125 water bottles for the company picnic, go. And of course, we asked them some questions first to learn more about how they plan a purchase like that. How do they make decisions? Who do they collaborate with? Who approves it? Who decides the budget? How do they decide if they're buying water bottles or something else? So we got to know a lot of their world and ecosystem. And then we just put them in front of their own computer and, and had them share their screen and said, go. Now, we saw probably 20 websites. One of them was our clients. 
and we saw 20 websites and we didn't always tell them when we were on the client's website. They would say, okay, now I'm going to check out this website. They seem to have water bottles. Oh, this site's terrible. You know, we're like, cool, go, go, go. You know, and so in a sense, that was kind of evaluative in that we were having them do a task in an existing product, but we weren't doing that to figure out an incremental improvement or an iteration that the client could do. We really wanted to see if there was something the client was doing that probably needed to be really rethought or really mm. reinvented. And because we were had the, for lack of a better word, mindset of, we just want to see all the opportunities here. We didn't just come up with a small iteration or improvement. We didn't say, oh, if you move this button here, you'll probably make more sales. We, we really, we, we ended up innovating something for them that no other site had. And that was because we were open to that because we mm. weren't pre- obsessed with oh let's see if we can make this a little better or run an a b test we at my company we don't think that way we're looking at <clears throat> where can we really help our clients jump past competitors basically you remove any biases whatsoever uh maybe to. not all of them but uh, as mo <clears throat> as many as possible Absolutely. Once you're putting on a research hat, whether it's you or your CPO friend or somebody else, anybody who's putting on a research hat, whether or not they're that good at it, should be absolutely without bias. Uh, for example, I'll give you a weird example. A lot of people come to me with their questions and someone sent me a LinkedIn message and they said, um, I'm supposed to write up a research plan to talk to uh, a certain type of people about their exercise habits, and I'm going to ask them what their political leaning is. And of course, all of the alarms are going off in my mind, like, whoa, this is exercise. Why are we asking people like their politics? And I said, this seems almost um, uh, weird. Why would you ask them that? And this person said, well, I believe that more liberal people are more likely to exercise and conservative people are not going to exercise. And I said, that's your prejudice. That's your bias. Just because someone is liberal or conservative doesn't mean they're healthy, doesn't mean they're exercising, doesn't mean they're doing good or bad exercise, doesn't mean they're eating right. That's your own bias. Get that crap out of your question list. And they were kind of embarrassed. But I think it's really easy for someone who's not an expert researcher to accidentally or on purpose bring bias into questions. Uh, I, I Sometimes I see things on websites where I can tell they're trying to figure out if I act a certain way because of my the age group I'm in. I'm 51, so there's a lot of... Uh, preconceived notions about what does a 50-year-old woman do or a 50-year-old at all. And I have to tell you, in general, they treat me like I'm a grandmother. And I'm very not. Uh, in fact, I purposefully had no children, so I'm never going to be a grandmother. But in general, I'm treated like I need soft and delicate and pink things and, and lots of skin cream and vitamins. And my thought is, well, actually, on Monday, I'm taking in my motorcycle to be tuned up. And, you know, th this, this life you've invented for me because of my age and gender identity is, is a false one. So I think we do have to be careful of our biases, especially when we fall into old, old ways with demographics and stereotyping people by these groups or what I call lazy buckets. <laughs> nice. 
What, what are the most common obstacles that companies face when trying to implement customer-centric strategies or tactics and, and how can one overcome it? Yeah, I think them. one of the biggest, op yeah, there's lots of them. I think one of the biggest obstacles is people claim they want to be customer centric and they really don't. So to me, the first obstacle is a bit of self-awareness or company awareness. You say you want to be customer centric, but what does that mean? I love when people say, oh, Amazon is the most customer centric company. Have you heard this? On yeah. the planet. And I always say, in what way? And then people stop because as a customer, we don't know. We only know that Amazon is pretty good at making us buy stuff, but is it really customer centric? I just had a really hard time on the site finding where to contact support. I eventually had to look in the footer because it wasn't clear from anywhere else. How, if, if Amazon is so customer centric, what does that look like? So I think for starters, we have to take a look at ourselves and say, customer centric doesn't mean making customers do stuff. It doesn't mean turning customers into mindless robots so that we achieve our goals. And I feel sometimes like that is Amazon's version of customer centricity. They're great at making us buy stuff, but how happy are we really? Especially when we learn more about either how they treat their sellers or how they treat their workers or how, how many of their reviews are, are faked. Um, is that still customer centric? So I think we have to really take a look at ourselves and say, how much are we willing to change? And then I think we have to take a look at our company values. Do our company values support customer centricity? Are we saying that we are honest, transparent, empathetic? Hold on, I always like to set off to this. Empathetic. <laughs> yeah, are we saying these things? Well, if we're saying these things, then we should follow through on them. Compare that to company values for someone like Facebook, where there's nothing in there about caring about customers or being honest or, or having empathy. It's all moving fast and being smart and, you know, these, these things that you could tell were purposefully written so they can be ethically ambiguous. So I would say a lot of the blockers come from this and also come from we want change, but we don't want change. I can't tell you how many companies I work with who say, we're agile. We're so agile. And then I go, well, here's some ways you, you should probably change your staffing or your processes so that you can do better for your customers. And I, I will hear nearly without someone having to breathe first, oh, we don't need to do that. That's not agile. That's too slow. So there's nothing in agile that says you can't slow down a little to be better. Agile says customer satisfaction, quality, lean says reduce defects, quality, value. So we, I think again, from everybody reading lean startup, we think that, that being agile or producing products or services means go as fast as you can and do not slow down for quality. But agile and lean and all these things were originally based on factories. Factories can't set their machines to fastest possible. You have to find the balance between speed and efficiency and quality and defects. And so I would say these are some of the key blockers I find with companies is that as soon as I talk about quality, I've had people say to me, I'm afraid of that word. I'm not judged by quality at my job. I'm judged by deadlines. And deadlines and quality are almost opposite. 
And so I think that at uh, an another thing a company will have to do is soften up those deadlines a little bit. Talk to your teams. Don't put a date in a PowerPoint slide and then tell the teams meet this deadline. Work with your teams on how long it would take for us to have the highest quality. How long would it take for us to have the second highest quality? How long would it take for us to have poor quality? And then decide where on that spectrum you want to be. And then don't be surprised if your customers react accordingly, like mm -hmm. leaving or downgrading or calling customer support. So I would say those are some of the things that tend to block companies the most and some of the things they'll need to think about changing or doing differently that that is often very scary for them. We are so caught up in speed that people are now afraid of slowing down for quality. And I say, do it. You want it as a customer. Name a company that you wish would be faster, but not better. We want everyone to be better. Your, com your customers want that too. Do it. <laughs> I, I do want to do a follow-up question on that and sure. uh, hear your thoughts on the popularized by Facebook, the phrase popularized by Facebook, which goes smooth, fast and break things, right. which, uh, which they consider, which I consider um, an approach to research on steroids, steroids, uh, <laughs> basically checking things uh, and exploring things as fast as possible. Uh, not necessarily like, yeah, there's a one piece of it is, of course, cutting the quality, but also it brings in an opportunity to learn things um, or explore things um, that may be harder to get in other ways. And uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, and I think that we don't talk enough about quotes like these. And to me, they, they shouldn't be inspiring because they sound like they're excuses. And they, they definitely give us excuses to say, well, we did what Facebook said. We were fast and we, we broke things. And, <laughs> you know, maybe we'll fix them later. So I think you have to ask yourself, what does fast look like? Because can fast be efficient but still maintaining quality? What does breaking things mean? Are we breaking things during the UX and human-centered design process where we learn from our UX prototype that we broke it and that we didn't do what customers needed? Or are we waiting until we've coded it and tested it and merged it and put it out there and left it out there for everybody to see and investors to see and, and competitors to see? Is, is that you know, you have to remember Facebook's in a unique position with nearly no competition, with no real competition. Facebook can do whatever the F it wants, and it doesn't care if you like it or not. I mean, remember, this is where their ethics and company values lie. Their company values lie in the manipulation of people. How much do we want to be like Facebook? Sure, we're jealous of their revenue. Sure, we'd love to have that many users, but let's take a real hard look at Facebook. How much of what Facebook is doing do we really want to be like? And, and I think that while it sounds like move fast and break things is cool, I always say not unless you fix those before the customer experiences them. Because we've all gotten apps that were broken. We've all gotten websites that felt broken. We've all written to customer support and said, this is broken. I've written to customer support and said, this is broken. And they've written me back and said, no, that's how we designed it to work. Is that still good? Are, are, where will we create 
good morale for our workers? Where will we create pride for our workers? Will our staff and workers be like, I did something great today? Or will they say, I shipped something broken because Facebook had a crappy slogan and I don't know why we're even listening to it. So I, I think that I can't think of anything about Facebook that I want to be like. And I think that everyone should have a real tough talk with themselves about what aspects of Facebook do you think you want to be like? Because time and time again, they are so controversial and considered so unethical. And, and I also believe that's reflected in their salaries. They're not going to pay you three cents to work there. They essentially have to rent your soul. And so I, I think that we should be careful of some of these phrases like just ship it. And if you ship too late, you're, you should be embarrassed. If you're not embarrassed, you ship too late. That's what it is. And I go, who wants to be embarrassed? Who, I don't want to be embarrassed by what we ship. Neither do the people who work for me. Neither do the people who work for you. What are we doing? And we've amassed all of these things that are really excuses. And you know what? They're crappy excuses. And they don't fly with our customers. But we pat each other on the back when we get into that meeting and we go, we moved fast. We broke things. We just shipped it. We'll probably Good fix job. it later. <laughs> yeah, look at us. Yay, us. And I go, what are you really doing? This is supposed to be about winning customers naturally because we're good not because we're unethical and weird satisfying them and making them happy because we're good not because we trick them into hoping they like it and keeping them and earning their loyalty because we're good and and i think we forgot about a lot of the because we're good facebook's not good facebook is just pretty much all we have right now and someday there will be something better and Facebook will either rise to that challenge or they'll keep being who they are. But it's really easy to be Facebook when you have no competition. Uh, as we wrap up, I'd like to ask you a final question, which is related sure. to the advancements in technology and uh, especially in AI. Uh, sure. And my question is, how has those advancements uh, impacted the field of customer experience, customer centricity, UX, and how can companies adapt to them? Yeah, right now, these are negative impacts. So I definitely have a lot of hope and excitement for the future of AI, but for where AI is right now, it is not great for CX and UX because in most cases, people are trying to replace observing users or observing target users and talking to them with AI. And so they're saying, oh, you don't have to talk to customers. Just tell this AI who your audience is, usually demographics, 50-year-old woman, and uh, tell us what you want to build, and we'll tell you if people will like it. Um, and I say, well, well, that that doesn't make sense. We're 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 doing mediocre research now, if any, and now we're going to hope a robot can tell us what a human will like and how a human will react to an unknown thing. This is just way out there. This is this is a, a, what I like to call a guessing lasagna. You know, this is a guess about people a guess about the solution and uh, more guesses and now AI guessing if people's going to, are, are going to like this. And I've read some of those companies' terms and conditions and it says like, we're not responsible for any decisions you make or any product you build. And I'm thinking, sure. So um, 
I see a lot of that. I also see some people saying, well, I'm going to call people and then I'm going to feed it into AI and they're going to tell me what people need. And I'm seeing some of the best and most qualified researchers I know trying the same technologies where they can tell the difference between good and bad outputs. And they're saying these outputs are still bad. AI is making stuff up. We're actually going to do a, one of our, uh, in our free webinar series, October 23rd, 2023, we're going to have some AI experts on to talk about this stuff. And they call it an AI hallucination. Um, so AI makes stuff up. I don't know if mm, you've played with AI absolutely. and found that it told you something that wasn't absolutely. true. Yeah. So I would say AI is so exciting for the future and, and I do believe it will get there, but I don't think it's there now. And so while I think AI is great at writing an article, redoing your resume, summarizing bullet points from a longer conversation, some AIs are good at that, some are not. Um, Google Bard isn't doing a great job right now. Someone just showed me Claude. I think Claude's doing an okay job right now, but that could change tomorrow. Chat GPT, I didn't love. Um, I think we just have to remember to use critical thinking. I think people are so excited mm -hmm. about AI that they assume whatever comes out of it is okay, or everyone say it with me, good enough. And I think we have to go beyond good enough because it might not be good enough. Uh, some of the stuff AI has been giving me is really strange. I recently fed one of my video transcripts into Claude and I asked it to give me a summary uh, of, of the bullet points of the video. And it did a really nice job, but it took, a, um, it took the technique that I was teaching that I semi-invented and attributed it to someone else. And oh, I was nice. like, how'd that happen? Where'd you get that from? And I wrote to like, how did you know this person created it? And they said, oh, I'm sorry, that person didn't create this. So I think that we must retain our critical thinking and remember that AI, when it gives you something, it is an output, but it doesn't come with a confidence score. It doesn't come with a BS mm -hmm. score. It doesn't come with a score of how much did I make crap up? And, and I, I think that the, especially the people who think they're going to rely on AI for innovation must remember that the AI is trained on existing knowledge and data. It might not have the human imagination to invent something that's never been done before. And it might tell you and all of your competitors the same things. So will you still innovate if AI is telling all of you to, to make a one liter cup? So that that's where that so i would say i'm excited about the future of ai but i don't think it is a good match at this time to cx and ux and it certainly doesn't replace the work humans are doing keep thinking and stay critical please <laughs> critical thinking y'all <laughs> debbie thank you very much uh, you gave me a lot of things to think about um so. <laughs> uh, it was a pleasure to have you here thank you thanks so much for having me on good luck everybody Better Tech Leadership powered by BrainHub. Follow Les Schick on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Better Tech Leadership newsletter.